Let's pray. Father, thank you for the grace and mercy you've given to us in Christ, that you have given him a name that is above every name. And Lord, we worship you for the Son. We thank you for his great work uh, on the cross in bringing forgiveness so that we might be adopted as a people that will forever enjoy you in perfect communion with the creator of all things, face to face as a father to a son and a daughter. Father, may that cause our hearts to swell with deep affections for Christ and all that he has done for us. May it give us a hope, a a, a longing to enjoy that which you have created for us. Father, lead us into authentic, heartfelt, joy-filled worship. Father, forgive, forgive our attempts at worship apart from the power of the Spirit. Forgive us for fearing what other men are thinking of us, pandering to people, coming with indifference and apathy and laziness. Father, you are worth everything, our lives. May you change us through the breaking of this word. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so authenticity. It, it would be a lovely thing in politics. I, I think it would be lovely in politics. In fact, kind of an irony, the French transport minister I read a few months ago, politician, transport minister, he does all the highways in France. He was caught speeding, going very fast. So, of course, he explained himself that he was on a uh, serious mission to a meeting that they had. Well, as the press dug around, they found that the meeting he was to have was to unveil a new speed trap set up. Kind of ironic. Authenticity would be lovely in business. Of course, the uh, UBS, the United Bank of Switzerland, has just taken on its chin a $2.3 billion loss scandal, brought the resignation of the CEO. We've seen plenty of our own goofs in here in America, uh, it would be nice to have authenticity. It would be lovely. It would even needed. But authenticity in worship is an absolute necessity. Absolute necessity for you, for us to worship God in authenticity. I, I want you today to consider how authentic is your worship. You may be wondering, well, is this even a question you should be asking about where my heart is in terms of worship? Well, I think it's a very legitimate question. I think God cares about how we worship and why we worship. I mean, I, let me remind you of the, that God cares so much that he established a whole tribe of Israel to lead and direct in worship. It's essential. You know, in this second disputation, so... So Malachi is bringing a divine dispute with the people of God. He's not speaking to the unbeliever. He's not speaking to the pagan. He's, not, he's speaking to the church. He's speaking to the people of God. And he is disputing their lack of authenticity in worship. They were indifferent. They were careless. They were lazy in how they approached God. 
And so we have verses 6 to 14 to give us clarity on this. Now, my hope is this. This passage, if, if you understand English and you have a heart and you claim to be a Christian, this will leave you about six inches shorter. But I don't want condemnation to come. What I'm asking for and what we have prayed for is conviction of the Spirit that would lead you to better understand. Instead of rationalizing and explaining our way out of the corners that Scripture often paints us into, I would rather just have it lead us to conviction, repentance, and then claiming the glories of the gospel that we might walk in the freedom and say, thank you for the grace you've given to me and warnings. Warnings are always gracious. If you don't care about a person, you don't warn them. But if you love them, what do you say to your kids walking out the door? Be careful. You're always warning those you love. And I think God loves us here. So turn with me, if you will, to Malachi 1, 6 to 14. Remember, God's going to speak most of these verses. That should draw your mind Gird up your mind that you will listen with great intensity as if I was giving you instructions regarding if our boat goes down, here's what you have to do. You'd all be all perked up for that. He says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? Well, by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God, that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you? says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. And I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering? Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what's blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. What do you say when someone says, I love you, and you know it's that heart full, I love you? What, What do you say? What do you think? I mean, don't you want to respond with appreciation or gratitude or at least a response back to how you love them? You know, last week we looked at the love of God. Remember, God's coming to a people to challenge them. The first thing he does is says how much he loves us. 
That's such a wonderful way that God approaches us. I've loved you. And he showed us this love in the calling of Abraham out of all the people of Ur. He calls Abraham. He elects Abraham. He calls him out and says, through you I will make a people to myself. And he gave him the law. He gave him the covenants. He gave him the sacrificial system. He gave him priests and prophets and kings to lead this people. He called Jacob last week. Jacob I loved. That he chose him to be a son. He chose him to be a servant. He didn't do it based on some past record of behavior. He didn't do it on some potential opportunities that Jacob would have. He did it to display his divine favor. Just his divine mercy. He just chose him. You will be a son to me. And I will be a father to you. And as a son you will serve me. In the great work that I have in this world. Just God showing mercy. What would you expect? What would the response be to that? Would it not be gratitude? Would it not be, yes, I love being a son. Yes, I would love to serve you because of your magnificence. That would be the expected response. Not only that, but as God identifies himself in this passage, he says he's the Lord of hosts seven times in nine verses, 24 times in this book. The Lord of hosts is how God has revealed himself. This El Elyon, this, this, we don't, it's debated what hosts mean. It could mean armies or angels. It could, it's applied to all the stars of heaven. So God is revealing himself that I am the God of all the armies of heaven. All the angels are at my beck and call. All the trillions of stars are being sustained by my word. In other words, God is painting himself as very great, very powerful, above all things. And he is the one that said, I want you to be my son. He's the one that says, I'm calling you to serve me in the great work of my kingdom. I mean, how would you respond to that? I mean, to be selected, to be chosen. To have love given to you by God. It's overwhelming. It's humbling we talked about last week. Well, of course, we see in the text that they didn't see it that way. And this is, by the way, God says a son honors his father, a servant his master. It's expected. Doesn't a son honor the father? Everybody would say, yeah, yeah, of course they should. I mean, all the father is to them and all the father does. Sure. And yet it appears that they did not. Because God chides them. He says this. He says, well, if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? And he says this to you, O priests, who despise my name. Now, he's not just speaking to the priests. He is, of course, including them. But if you look in verse 14, he's also cursing the cheats who are bringing blemished, lame, and sick offerings to the, to the temple. So he's really going after both priests and people. And he's saying, you despise my name when you don't honor me, when you don't worship me, when you don't reverence me. He says, he says you despise my name. We think, well, that's such a hard word. I mean, it's not really despising your name. But he says, no, you're despising my name because you're undervaluing my glory. You're underestimating my worth. You're not treasuring my beauty because you're treating me with contempt. I'm the Lord of hosts. You're not honoring me. You're not reverencing me. And the people, of course, it's like, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. They say, well, how have we despised your name? Now they're, they're responding back to God 
with greater explanation. How have we despised your name? How have we polluted your altar? You know, the reason I think they are confused is because they are religious. These people are religious. We are religious. They were going to the temple. They were offering sacrifices. They were praying. They were attending worship services. They were doing those things. And God's saying to those people, not the pagans, not the unbelievers, he's saying to the religious, you've been despising my name. They go to worship services, but they're not worshiping. They profess a faith, but they don't possess it. They're religious, they're not faithful. They claim to be sons and daughters, but they don't honor my name. So that's the charge God brings to the people of God. And then he begins to present the evidence. He wants to answer their questions. And so he begins with their actions. He says, you bring animals that are blemished, lame, sick, blind. You know, remember now, in the sacrificial system, you're bringing a lamb or an offering that is to be unblemished. In Leviticus 22, we read, you shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it will not be acceptable for you. And when anyone offers a sacrifice from the herd or from the flock to be accepted it must be perfect there shall be no blemish now why is god just a stickler for detail a type a personality kind of god no but the the offering the value of that offering in our estimation is to be a reflection of how we value him and so to bring an animal that is blemished a kind of a three-legged lamb because we don't really want it in our flock anyway is despising, holding in contempt, the value of God. And these actions are always related to attitudes. If you see, he takes issue not just with their offerings, but with the offerers. Because actions always follow from attitudes. And and behaviors always follow from beliefs. And so the evidence that God is presenting is the way that they worshipped is evidencing their devaluation of God. They thought little of God, evidenced by their offerings. And so God charges them to stop. He says, I don't want them. He said, you wouldn't do this to your governor. I love that. I mean, that is so in your cage. You wouldn't do this to some human dignitary, would you? And they wouldn't accept it. And yet you think you're going to treat me with your false worship, the Lord of hosts? That's why he says in the text, I just want somebody to shut the doors. In other words, what he's saying is, board up the temple. Shut the thing down. Put it out of business. I don't want you making these offerings if they're coming from a heart that doesn't even want to honor or reverence God. He says, shut it down. He says, uh, it almost sounds like God's pleading when he says, oh, that one of you would not kindle a fire. Put the fires out. That's why he says, the end of 10, I have no pleasure in you. And I'll not accept an offering from your hand. Folks, that is, that is heavy duty on the religious community. You know, just a small example. I remember as a kid, my dad would ask me to do things. And uh, between the years of probably 12 to 20, maybe longer, I, was, I could have been classified as like a goof. Um, and he asked me to paint the house for a summer and was even willing to pay me for it. And I remember approaching the job, and I did not want to paint the house. And uh, I thought, well, no, I'm going to do it in the quickest way possible. 
with the least amount of work invested and a very high indifference to whether paint gets on the house or the bushes. And I remember uh, doing that, and, and it really I could use other eight other examples. And Dad comes out and he says, if this is the job you're going to do, I, I don't even want you doing it. Now, I thought that Dad hadn't appreciated that I was more of a thinker. I wasn't really the worker type. <laughs> I, I, I was trying to convince him I had a future in intellectual study. But what I didn't realize at the time of my immaturity was how I dishonored him. He was a great dad. He, he loved me, cared for me, provided for me. He flew over me. He, 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 was, just, he was a great dad. And, and, and I did not honor him because my attitude was so poor. And it was birthed in poor actions. You know, when, when God speaks to the church about worship, He's not speaking about just how you come here on Sunday morning. That's obviously a part of it. But, you know, in Exodus 24, in in one of the commands, he says that we are to worship no other God nor serve them. So worship, in my understanding, is both this, this attitude of heart and adoration to God, but it's also the actions and the service that we render. So it's, yes, you come in here to treasure Christ, But it's also in the way you give. It's in the way you serve. It's in the ministries that you engage in and the motivation of those ministries. It's in the way that you are willing to sacrifice for others. All those things comprise your worship. And so the question begs, the the question that, that I want to ask is, so would God find our worship despising? I mean, do the actions that you produce in terms of your worship to God and the heart attitudes that are related to that, would he find those despising? This is what I asked at the beginning of the sermon. I want us to consider the authenticity of our worship. So is, would he find our worship despising? Well, let, let me give you some examples and maybe help us answer this question. So <clears throat> what kind of worship does God, would God find despising? Well, I think number one, Clearly, from the text, this idea of giving second best or giving leftovers. You know, God doesn't value the offering based upon its intrinsic value. In other words, God doesn't look at something regarding just its value. I think God values or looks at our worship as what is the value to us. In other words, in other words a, a right offering will come at sacrifice. If, if an offering means little to you, you can trust it will mean little to him. I, I don't think this is me making up. A couple of examples in 2 Samuel 24, when David is trying to avert this plague that's come because he's taken a census, and, and he is going to sacrifice offerings, and he is going to do it on this threshing floor that he doesn't own. And so the man who owns it says, no, just take it. Just take it and do your offerings. And, and here's what David says in Second Samuel. He says, oh, no, I, I will buy it from you for a price. I'll not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. In other words, in other words there is value for the glory of God as it costs me something in worship. Or think about the lady at the temple. Remember how she gave those two little coins? 
And Jesus looks at those and, she says, and says, she has given more than all those others. You can imagine, there's all these trumpet-shaped boxes in the temple, and people would come up and they'd actually blast trumpets when they were giving large donations, and you'd hear all the money being poured into these trumpet-shaped boxes. And so there was just thousands of coins being poured in here. And her two little Lipton, the two little, they weren't copper, but two little thin metal coins were worth nothing. And he says, she just put in more. Why? He said, he tells us, he says, because that's all she had. Think through, is your offering, in terms of your giving, in terms of your service, in terms of your willing to engage in sacrificial ministry, is there a cost to you? Or is it just the leftovers, how it fits in? Rachel shared with me, she works at a ministry, a working with mothers, seeking for mothers to keep their children. And a woman had called her up and said uh, that she wanted to make a donation. And uh, she said, but I want to have a garage sale first, and I want to sell everything I can sell, and then I'll just give you what's left over. Now, I'm not opposed to garage sales. I'm not opposed to making a choice. But, but what I'm speaking about is the leftovers go to God. Now, now, I'm not implying motives to her, but I want to ask you the question, So when we give leftovers, what is it saying to God about our evaluation of his greatness? What is it saying about the way I feel towards God or you feel towards God? I think think he despises leftovers because of his great worth. But secondly, I think that we can despise God in worship as we come indifferent, as as we come unengaged. You know, we just come to church. We're not even thinking about the glory of God. We're not even thinking about the cross of Christ. We're not even thinking about the brethren to whom God has drawn us together. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones once said that people come to church because they can figure out how to get home from there. That's the motivation of a lot of people. We write checks. Carol and I repented last night over this. We write checks, so we budget at the beginning of the year what we're giving to the church based upon salary. We write checks get paid every two weeks, we give every two weeks, and we often don't even think about what we're doing. It's, it's routine. We become indifferent to it. We've chosen to live without that portion of money. We're not thinking about it. it was, we came under conviction last night for that. There's an indifference even to service. You know, well, I'll do this. And we're not even thinking that he who was worthy of being served, came to, be ser- came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I, I mean, we're indifferent to the greatness of God. We don't think about, he has fought, this Father, God, has sovereignly chosen us to love him forever and that he has conferred love to us. That doesn't move us. We don't think that way. We don't think about his mercy in our lives. And we come to worship, see what's going to be happening. You know, Annie Dillard, I quoted this about five years ago. She wrote a book called the St- she, Teaching a Stone to Talk. And, and it, it's, it's a little paragraph. Let me read it to you. But it speaks about our, she puts it in the context of how dangerous it is to approach such a deity with such indifference. She says this, on the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs. So your mind is going back to the sacrifices they made just being faithful, having to hide in catacombs. On the whole, I do not find Christians outside the catacombs sufficiently sensible of the conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea of what sort of power we so blithely invoke? 
or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It's madness to wear ladies' straw hats. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews, for the sleeping God may awake one day and take offense. I mean, can you imagine oftentimes the indifference that we may bring? What does that say about God? What does that say when we give little time to moving from routine and indifference to preparing our souls to meet God? What does it say about his greatness? It says it isn't much. Another way is our stinginess with worship. Uh, Some of us are stingy with our money. You know, we don't want to give, and when we give, we resent it. I remember a guy telling me that he just gives what's in his wallet, 10 or 15 bucks. I said, oh, he said, you spend more on soda than that. I said, how are we going to run a church with you paying 500 bucks? I mean, what does that say about God? Or we're stingy with our time. If Sunday morning works out, great. If it doesn't, I've got places to go. Or we're stingy with our service. We can't get involved in ministry because I've got my family. Or I've got my business. Or I've got my portfolio. We've got all these other things precluding us from serving others. What does that say about God? There's another type of worship, I think, that God despises, and that is our duplicity. This strikes a little closer to home. I think it should for all of us in the sense of where are our hearts as we minister? So the battle I face, what I prayed for every morning before I ever preach, is I want to preach for his glory and not your glory. There's always the temptation for me to pander to you because I love you and I'm needy. There's always that tendency that we want to serve others for how they'll think about us. The quickest, and, and the quickest test of this is if they don't thank me for what I do, am I resentful? Well, I did. I wrote them a letter, or I did this, or I went and picked up their son. And, and immediately we get resentful that they haven't responded in the right manner. And I'm all about showing gratitude. I love that. I want to have a culture of gratitude in this church. But you know what I'm saying, I believe, that you know, Jesus said, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. How much ministry is done apart from even thinking upon the greatness of God? So I think God is warning us. He's speaking to the religious. He says, if, you're, if your worship is leftovers, if it's indifferent, if it's, if it's stingy, if it's duplicitous, God doesn't look upon that with favor. And that is mercy for us to hear. Because we can make changes. And this is what God is referencing, I think, in verse 11. You, so you go from verse 10. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. So, folks, for just a minute with me, think through if these apply to you. So do these apply to you? Because God's going to try to bring us to a different place right now. I think he's going to call us to right worship. Moving away from worship that he would find despising and move us to right worship. How do we move to right worship? And what does it look like? How do I know it if I see it? Well, he tells us in verse, in verse 11. He says, for. In other words, he's giving us the reason that he doesn't find pleasure in our 
despised worship. He says, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name in a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations. Now, so I wrote this sermon, and last night I had an epiphany, which may be like a 30-watt bulb at this point for what I remember of it last night. But I thought, Lord, why didn't you give me this like Thursday afternoon? So I'm going to try to work through this and explain what Carol and I enjoyed richly last night. So, God intends for his glory to be known throughout the world, throughout the nations. God intends that all peoples worship him. That's how great he is, that all people are going to enjoy him. From the rising of the sun to the setting, you know, from east to west, all peoples will enjoy him. Now, the people that Malachi was writing to, they would have known that God was going to be globally worshipped. They would have known that. Why would they have known that? Well, it was in the Psalms. It was in the prophets. The inclusion of the Gentiles, the spreading out of all nations. Why was it in the prophets and the Psalms? Well, because it was part of the promise in Genesis 12 when he chose Abraham. And he said that through you, I'm going to bless the nations. And I'm going to bless the nations by revealing myself to them in glory and greatness so that my name may be known to all people. I am the Lord of hosts, and I will be worshipped by all the peoples. That's God's intention. Now, you see this. Now, while this sentence is a little tricky, it doesn't have a verb in it. It has one participle. But most translate this with the future tense in verse 11. Why? Because it seems to lean forward. If you notice in the text, he says, then in every place incense will be offered to my name. So he's saying that, that worship, as you know it, in a temple in Jerusalem is going to be delocalized. It's going to be now, incense is going to be offered everywhere. People are going to be worshiping everywhere, not just going to this temple in this city, in this country. It's going to be everywhere. Not only that, but it's not going to be mediated through priests anymore. It's looking forward to a new time. He says that my name will be great among all the nations. All the peoples will worship this Lord of hosts. And so I think that the people of Malachi should have been looking for that time when God's name would have been declared great. So it's leaning forward, and I think it leans right into the Gospels. It falls right into the Gospels. Because in the ministry of Jesus Christ, what does he say at the very beginning of John's Gospel? He said that there will be a time, and it is now, he says in John 4.23, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshiper will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. He says the same thing in Matthew 8, 11. Leaning forward, he says, I tell you, many will come from the east and the west, the rising of the sun to its setting, and the recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, I think that Malachi was looking forward to that day that we are in now, which is when the coming of the Son of Man would come and reconcile sinners back to God. And in his reconciliation, in his work on the cross, he's going to divide, he's going to break down that dividing wall in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 on, and he's going to be gathering people together in Christ. It's now in union with Christ. It isn't this localized, institutionalized worship. But now the Gospels teach us this delocalized, deinstitutionalized. You don't need me as a priest to approach God. That in Christ you can approach God as Father. And that Jesus Christ is gathering the nations in himself through the power of the Spirit that we might worship him. 
that we might worship him as great. And I think we see this in in uh, Revelation 5, 9, they sang a new song, Worthy are you to take the scroll. He's speaking to Jesus now and open its seals. For you were slain and with your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they shall reign on the earth. And what's mind-bending about this is that, that it's God's great name that we're to be worshiping. But in Christ... And his work on the cross, it's Christ's great name that we're worshiping. That's why when Christie shared out of Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed. He has given him a name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So how do we magnify? How do we move away from worship that God would find despising? How do we move to worship that God would find pleasurable and enjoyable and satisfying? And it is to magnify the Son. But it's to magnify the Son as sons. In other words, I want you to think of savoring your sonship in the Son. In other words, because of Christ and his cross, you have been adopted. You've been drawn out of darkness into light. You're now a son of God for those who have loved Christ and trusted him by faith. And so to savor the Son, how do we worship? Well, it begins with a, with a heart. You know, it's no longer external. It's internal. Their hearts were far from me. Our hearts are to be close to him. So how do we worship God? How do we magnify God rightly? It's to savor your sonship. You've been elect. You've been called. You've been loved by God. It's to savor what Christ has done for you to draw you into the family of God. It's to think through the forgiveness, the mercy, the grace. Folks, just sit with me for three minutes and let us just talk about all that we have in God because of Christ. I mean, I mean, protection in this life. That nothing, neither life nor death, nor angels nor demons, nor things present, nor things to come, nor anything in creation, neither height nor depth, nor any power will be able to separate, separate us from the love of God that's in Christ. I mean, it's profound all that we have in Christ with the Father. And so we're to savor that. You're, to, you're just to think about it and chew on it and dwell upon it. Meditate, consider. So many of us were so busy that the idea of meditating on the glory of Christ in redeeming a people, because remember now, when we talk about salvation, this is really important, because I was raised where salvation is just about forgiveness. You've got to get forgiveness so you can go to heaven. <laughs> There's so much more. Forgiveness. The, the, Jesus Christ came. It's trustworthy saying he came to save sinners. We know that. But he came to save sinners so that they would become worshipers. The forgiveness that we've received, while it is a glorious thing, and I never want to underestimate it, I want to remember that it is not the final work of Christ. It is to save sinners so that we would be worshipers. One of the greatest sermons I read was Jonathan Edwards, The End for Which God Created the World. It's unbelievable. It is hard to slug through, but it is rich. And the whole point of it is God has created all these things that we would find our ultimate joy in the worship of his great name. That's why you've been saved. And that comes as we savor the Son.
as sons and daughters. And in that, your affections will grow. Your feelings for God will increase. Richard Sibbs was a great Puritan pastor in the uh, late 16th century. He says, affections are lawful. Yes, necessary in God's children. All actions in God's worship are esteemed according to the affections that they're done with. We are as we love, not as we know. That's critical. Many of you have heads packed full of theology, and your affections are at a nil. We are as we love, not as we know. I don't want you to put those in competition with one another, but the knowledge moves into affections. What is the life of the Christian but the performance of things with courage, delight, and joy? And therefore, the strongest Christians have the strongest affections. Religion does not harden the heart, but mollifies or softens it. Regeneration does not take affections away, but restores them to sanctification and purity. So how, does, how are we magnify God rightly? Savor our sonship as a son. But secondly, that we would be satisfied in the service. Remember, you cannot savor God's greatness without wanting to serve the one who has called you. In fact, the second most often used word for worship in the Old Testament is also translated serve, that there is a service. Paul speaks to this in Philippians. He says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. In other words, Paul saw himself as being able to worship God, magnify the Son in his body, whether he lives or dies. In other words, the way he lives will bring great glory to God, will magnify the greatness of God as he gives generously, as he serves sacrificially, as he loves unconditionally. As he, you, just go to the spheres in your life. How do you treat your wife or your husband, your children, your church, your community? Am I exalting Christ in my body in those relationships? That is what magnifies God as great. That's why the, the missionary that suffers to the point of dying, he's saying to everyone, he is worthier than my own life. Well, at a minimum, even if you don't believe in Christ, you at least would say, they see Christ as ultimately treasurable, more valuable than anything. So it's in our service. I think, too, in Romans chapter 12, that Paul appeals to us, brothers, by the mercy of God, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices, wholly acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It's worship to sacrifice ourselves for God. It displays his worth, and that's where our joy comes from. So, folks, there is an easy way to despise God in worship. We give him leftovers. We're indifferent. We're duplicitous. We're stingy. And yet, he calls us to magnify God, to treasure God to exalt God, both in the way we savor the Son in our own sonship, savoring God, thinking about Him, all that He is, treasuring Him above all things. Many of us have been given great gifts of God. The gifts of God are just the shafts of light to bring us back to the Son. We don't worship the shafts of light. We worship the Son. Savoring the Son and then serving the Son. So, so, for this sermon series to have an incremental effect leading you to a greater love for God, you have to contemplate these things with me. I want you to engage your heart on these issues.
Am I serving? Am I exalting Christ? Am I magnifying God in the way that I'm living and the way that I'm dying? Let me pray for us. And then I'd ask you to give word to God and the glory of his name. Father, thank you for your precious encouragement, warning, and scripture. Father, give us grace through the power of your spirit now that the Son has ascended and is sitting at the right hand of God. Give us the spirit in full measure that we might savor the Son as sons and daughters and that we might be satisfied in the sacrificial service to which you call us and for which we will have great joy. Thank you.